Hello, and welcome to the Rethink Missions podcast, where we learn from the stories and lessons of cross-cultural servants to the unreached people groups of the world. Welcome to today's episode. Here's your host, Jeremy Wardlaw. Our next guest, we've actually had on here before. He has survived an attack from a piranha. Wait, there's a piranha bit your toe at one point, right? Yeah, he's not in his head. So that's an attack by a piranha. He survived an attack by a wild... Mosquitoes. Mosquitoes. Okay. I mean, not as dramatic as a piranha attack. What about um, like a wild boar? Yes, yes. I was... Actually, I was trampled by a herd of them in the in the jungle. So that so was he, my fault, though. Okay, somehow that's your fault. You were <laughs> lying down in the middle of a wild boar highway or something? No, no, they did knock me down, but I should have known better. I should have been up in a tree by the time they were coming after me. So, so you've survived a wild boar attack as well as a, I'm just going to say, a jaguar attack. No, I'm making that up. Is that yeah? Okay. Yeah, you uh, are making that. Mosquitoes, mosquitoes. Oh, anaconda. That was pretty close. Pretty close call. Eh, maybe. He he had already eaten a deer, and so that, that wasn't me. That was the anaconda. Well, that's what I mean. The anaconda had already eaten a deer, so you weren't on the menu. That's right. That's right. Well. Welcome to all of you out there. Our next guest is Mr. Jungle. He um, is a church planter we've had on here before. He talked about church planting in Vine Village, teaching at a worldview level, and um, teaching in the indigenous language. So if you haven't heard that episode, go back to that episode and listen to it um, if you want some context. If not, we'll just jump in today. Today's podcast is about church planting and doctrine. Um, obviously, the ultimate goal of church planting is to see a thriving church that has biblical doctrine. But before it gets there, we kind of need to look at the church planter and his doctrine. And I kind of wanted to hear Mr. Jungle's opinions and thoughts and lessons learned on the importance of doctrine in the church planner's life. Hmm. Very, very important indeed. As we think about planting a church, the only thing that can be communicated to them is what you have yourself. And so the actual doctrine of the church planter is of prime importance. Now, there are many uh, organizations that use different methodologies. The methodology I like the best is you start in Genesis, laying a foundation for who God is and working through the Bible, teaching key biblical narratives as you go through building the broader grand narrative of the Bible, which uh, shows God's goodness, his grace, his, his holiness, his justice, but it's continually bringing up before the hearers the need for salvation and man's own sinfulness before this holy and righteous God. And that God uh, provides that for mankind. Now, before you start this kind of teaching, as we, we have been uh, 
talking about or just briefly uh, mentioned is the importance of the doctrine of the person who's transmitting it. Because a methodology will not correct bad doctrine. So, for instance, if I start with, let's say, uh, being heavily influenced by Catholic theology or Seventh-day Adventist, and that's where I'm coming from, but I'm using a good methodology which starts in Genesis, all that means is I will reinforce bad doctrine over and over before you get to the cross. And then it's very likely that the gospel will be lost in the process and you will end up with a works mentality. But it will have been reinforced lesson after lesson rather than the gospel of grace. So the the actual doctrine of the church planter, in my opinion, is the single most important thing. Second comes your methodology, but but a good methodology cannot correct bad doctrine. So doctrine, more important than methodology. And that's that makes sense, right? What you're teaching is more important than how you're teaching it. Um, even if there is a good way to teach cross-culturally and a not-so-effective way of teaching cross-culturally. So what were some of the challenges you faced um, as you were starting out, so call it call them doctrinal uh, pressures that you you kind of had to navigate yourself. Okay, well, actually, if if you look at the human heart, there's there's a couple of things that that uh, shouldn't surprise us, but they're they're present in every human heart. One is self righteousness that I am not needy. And the only way the person uh, will see their neediness is by a systematic in which you, you are continually presenting the holiness and the righteousness of God and showing how man falls short of that. Uh, so the first thing you have to navigate is that human condition of self-righteousness. And then linked with that human condition of self-righteousness is the desire to do something to earn salvation, good works. I mean, we see that uh, all through Scripture. Paul, when he addresses the Romans in uh, Romans chapters 1 to 4 and 5, he's emphasizing that the gospel, yes, it's for all, all have sinned, but it's by faith alone apart from works. And that is a constant emphasis. And, and you see it coming up again in, in Galatians, don't we? And so understanding man's condition and man's tendency to opt for works in order to earn your salvation or become acceptable to God, we have to, as we're teaching, we have to recognize this is every man's condition and tendency. And so throughout our teaching, we're showing that uh, it's not of works. It's by God's grace that he provides the way and that scripture is very clear how man accesses that way is through faith. And we see it uh, from Genesis right through to Revelation. I've heard you say before, church planting is easier than presenting the gospel of grace. 
What do you mean by that? <laughs> and and that is a provocative statement, isn't it? Oh, church planting is easier than presenting a clear gospel message. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, just look at many of the countries that have been most missionized. Let's say like in New Guinea, and, and there's many, many countries where missionaries have gone for years and years. There's churches all over the place. There's Catholic churches, there's Seventh-day Adventists, there's Baptists, there's Pentecostal, there's, there's all kinds of these churches in indigenous areas. But if you go and start to question what they understand about the gospel, it is missing. And yet the form, there's a church there, they come on, on Sunday mornings, they sing, they pray, but they don't understand the gospel. And, and, and they've been going on doing this for years and years. They're even baptizing people. But the gospel of grace is missing. And so that's why I say it's, it's easier to plant a church than to present a clear teaching of the gospel of grace. Because man is very quick to adopt new forms. If he thinks, well, if I do this, if I, if I even make a church, if I get baptized, somehow this will help me, protect me from the spirits, give me good, uh, good luck in hunting and, and even, even let's say go to heaven because of my good works. Then man will gravitate towards that. So that's why I say it's easier to plant a church than to teach in a clear way and present the gospel of grace clearly. Right, because you don't mean plant the church in a belief sense. You mean it literally. It's easier to build a church building, have people attend it regularly, and call that a church plant than it is to actually have people in an indigenous language and culture authentically believing on Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And that's, that's kind of what you mean by that. That's, that's exactly correct. And, and, uh, if this were a video, you could see, uh, me, me saying planting a church with, within, uh, aspis, you know, it's, it's, uh, air quotes, yeah. air quotes. Yes. Um, it's not a real church, but it looks from the outside. It looks like a church. There's a building, there's singing, there's pastors, there's baptisms, but the actual understanding of the gospel of grace and the teaching is quite missing. So wouldn't you say the training that people get before they go should get them ready doctrinally? Do you think you can trust their training to kind of get them ready doctrinally to be ready to, to plant a church or... What were your thoughts beyond training beforehand? Well, it <clears throat> it is definitely, definitely a thing that is high in priority for me is clarity when it comes to doctrine, and especially the basic doctrine of the gospel, and and understanding what faith alone apart from works actually means. Because if, if your definition, and I, I see it happening in North America, many people are redefining faith in Christ to be faithfulness to Christ. That seems like a subtle, oh, it's almost the same. No, it is not. It is completely different. Me placing my faith 
in Christ, in his finished work on the cross, is completely different from me being faithful to Christ. Me being faithful to Christ is looking at my works. Faith in Christ is looking at the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So there there needs to be absolute clarity on the part of the missionary regarding even the word faith. If not, it is the missionary who is going to choose what word we use for faith in this cross-cultural situation because uh, there's, there's going to be multiple words that could be kind of close and if the missionary's not clear, he's going to choose a word that more fa- more closely resembles obedience, more closely resembles faithfulness, or even allegiance. And those things have somewhat of a aspect of faith, but they actually miss the boat. Faith in Christ is you trusting in somebody outside of yourself. It's not your obedience. It's the obedience that Christ already had in going to the cross. So the word faith is just an example of how uh, it's been reinterpreted with this self-righteous lens that you mentioned before, where we are self-righteous. And so we want to add to our salvation, or somehow guarantee it through our obedience of some sort. Um, What are some other words or concepts that you have seen missionaries sort of bring their North American baggage to their church plant? Well, of course, it, it it can range depending even on uh, on the culture. Uh, let's take, and I'm not sure if we talked about this the last time, but let, let's just take another animistic culture that is more heavily magic, okay? And in a magic culture, they are interested in the words that are spoken, the actual words. How did God say that? What are the words? Because they believe there's power in the correct words spoken in the correct way at the correct time. So, for instance, in in creation, and God said, let there be light. They would be very interested in understanding, okay, how did God say it? What did he say? Tell me exactly what he said. Because their thinking is those words have power, and if I can learn these power words, then somehow I can make things come to being. And for instance, in in our North American context, we always say there's power in prayer. And I believe in prayer, absolutely. But the power doesn't really reside in prayer. The power resides in God. God's people humbly petition a powerful God to do something. So the power is not in the prayer that I speak or the words that I'm speaking. The power resides in God. However, in a magic culture, they are going to, they believe that the power is in the words rightly spoken. So the missionary going in, he's going to need 
to understand this concept. And he's going to need to teach in such a way that he doesn't let that, uh, that misunderstanding come into the teaching. Otherwise, they're going to be, they're going to be very, very interested in how do you pray? I mean, that interest will be very high, but what they're actually thinking is, what are the exact words you use? How do you start it? How do you end it? Because somehow those words have power to make things happen. Not that that we are petitioning a powerful God, but the words in and of themselves. So, so some of those things, the missionary, if they're not aware of it, they're teaching away, they're thinking they're communicating, and the people are eating it up, but they're they're understanding something considerably different. Wow, that sounds so, uh, that's just so much to figure out. Let's say you were going into a people group who, they're starting at zero, they've never heard, and there's so much doctrine that you kind of, you want to impart to them. Where do you even, how do you figure it out? Where do you even start? Really good question. Yeah, where do you start when you look at the Bible? And, and even now, after years and years of studying the Bible, it's like, I know I don't know anything as I ought to. You know, so where do you start with a people group uh, that virtually have nothing? And it's, isn't it interesting? When I think of the Bible, the number one question I believe all of us should ask is, when I read the Bible, what do I learn about God? So who's the primary actor from Genesis all the way to Revelation? The primary actor is God. So really, this is a revelation of God himself. This is about who God is. So every lesson that you're teaching, your primary question is, what do we learn about God? What attribute of God is most prevalent in this story, or attributes. Usually there's multiple in every story. So you're you're starting with this position of they need to know God. Because a self-righteous person, the only way he's going to get to the end of himself is to actually see and understand who God is and his righteous standards. So you're going to be teaching through the lessons showing God's righteousness because he's it, it, he has no sense of need of God. Uh, he might feel like he needs to control the spirits. He might feel like he has some horizontal needs, but that he actually has sin before a holy and a righteous God, and this sin is going to take him to a very undesirable place. That isn't even on his radar. So every single lesson your primary actor in the lesson is always God. And then you're showing how man relates to God or how man measures up to God. So when you think of God's, God's attributes, they divide very neatly into two categories, and then one of those categories subdivides again, and I'll talk about that. <clears throat> the first category, I'll call it amoral. That's not immoral. That means there's not necessarily any moral quality to it. For instance, wisdom. God knows everything. 
Well, that doesn't necessarily mean uh, there's a moral quality to it. His holiness brings a moral quality to his wisdom or even his power. There's God is all-powerful, but there's nothing essentially inherently moral in power. But when you when you link with that power, God's holiness, his justice, his love, his mercy, now all of a sudden that power is infused, let's say, with his moral attributes. So when you're teaching through the lessons, you're, you're wanting to hit on God's amoral attributes, which are his omniscience, omnipotence, all, all um, everywhere present. His sovereignty, all of those things deal with a powerful being. But then in the moral category, you can subdivide God's moral attributes into two, uh, two categories. And this is especially important as we think of the unbeliever who, who doesn't know who this God is. For instance, a sinner who is separated from God but doesn't know that he is in this terrible condition, what does he need to know about God's moral attributes? He needs to know his righteousness, his holiness. And that's like a mirror. Scripture talks about the law being a mirror that a person can look into and then you you see how you don't measure up. So his holiness, his justice, and that, and then you tie in with that, that God sees everything. So this holy, just, righteous God, he sees everything and he is everywhere present. And then you continue to tie in that because he is just and he is everywhere and sees everything, he will punish every sin. So, so then the person may even think, okay, so there is this holy, righteous, just God, and he wants to punish, but he's, he can't do it because I'm powerful. Well, that's where God's omnipotence, his all-powerfulness. So his power trumps any spirit's power. So when we tie in God's amoral attributes with his, what I call his heavy attributes to the sinner, to the one who is separated from God, his holiness and his justice, and we teach in such a way, our objective is to help him see where he stands before this holy and just God. And hopefully it brings him to the end of himself. And our objective is to see people get to the place where they sense and they understand they are helpless and hopelessly lost before this holy and just God. But... While you're also teaching uh, on those things, you're using these lessons, you're also showing God is a God of love. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of grace. He's a God of patience. He, he always provides a way of salvation. So on the one hand, you're showing the desperate condition, but on the other hand, you're showing, you know what, this all-powerful God, he also loves you. And because he's all-powerful and all-wise, he has the wisdom to know how to pre- prepare for you a way of salvation from your own sin. And then we can, we can be teaching those principles, uh, for instance, in the Old Testament with Cain and Abel. 
we have the two sacred. God provided a way that both Cain and Abel could come. Why? Because God is gracious. He is loving. He is kind. And scripture tells us by faith, Abel brought the more excellent sacrifice. And then we also have Noah, the story of Noah. Was everyone a sinner? Absolutely. Even Noah was a sinner. And we tend, we tend to think that, okay, everyone was bad, but Noah was a good man. That's why God loved him. No, Noah was a sinner just like everyone else. However, Noah believed God. Noah trusted God. Cain and Abel, was, was Abel a good boy and Cain a bad boy? No, they were both sinners. They were both separated. They were both in need of God's grace. And God always provides his way of salvation. And those who come to him by faith, accepting his way of salvation, are saved. And so that's how we're, we're working through these stories one at a time, showing God's holiness, his justice, and nobody can escape because he's all powerful and all, but at the same time showing this, this God who is holy and just, he's also loving and kind and gracious and provides that. And man can be accepted by trusting in God's provision. So you're doing that. Every lesson, maybe it's 70 lessons that you're working through the Old Testament before you get to the cross. And then once they get to the cross, this whole idea of God being a holy and a just, it's not new to them. They've seen it for weeks and weeks. Mm. And that God is gracious and he provides a way of salvation. It's not a new concept. They've seen it throughout the Old Testament. And at the cross, now they see the the ultimate. Here's holiness, justice, love and mercy and kindness all coming together on the cross. See, that really makes sense. I mean, the way you describe the moral attributes and God's amoral attributes, not immoral, amoral. There's no inherent good about his power. Power is power. But the way you describe that, sort of give that framework that's really helpful as a teacher and it's not necessarily something you explicitly say to someone who's understanding who god is for the first time but it is something that is helpful for you as the teacher as the teacher in your in the back of your mind you're kind of making sure you hit all these points and you're able to explain it in a way that they can understand it and feel their need for Christ. Um, that's really helpful. Awesome. Any other tips, like framework that the church planner can have in the back of his mind? Yeah, and I'm I'm glad you used the word framework because that that really is a framework of evangelism. You know, I would call that the framework of evangelism. Every story you're using that, and so. With evangelism, you're, you're speaking, you're teaching to one who is not yet saved. He's an unbeliever. <clears throat> Excuse me. And you're bringing him to the cross. That's the objective is, is that they come and delight and realize what Jesus has done for them. Now, when a person trusts Christ, one of the things you're going to want to begin to teach now to the just saved is their new identity. Because all along you've been showing how, 
how sin separates us from God. There's no hope of getting to heaven. You can't, uh, you can't get there on your own. It has to be God's way and God's way alone. And you have to trust that way. But once they have understood that and they have placed their faith, now you want to establish them in their new identity. You were darkness. Now you are light in the Lord. It's a completely different paradigm now. Show them that uh, before you were really a child of the devil. Now you've been born into the family of God. You are the child of God. Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother. Like, wow, those those are, are foundational truths that we now start to establish the believer in, that he is indwelt and sealed by the Holy Spirit. The resources of God himself now indwells the believer. And it, it's his new identity. He was darkness. Now he's light. He was a child uh, that belonged to the devil. Now he's he's a child of God. Uh, he's indwelt by the Holy Spirit and sealed permanently. You're establishing them in their their firm foundation before God and even before Satan, that Satan cannot pluck you out of God's hands. Once you have placed your faith in Christ, something happens and God does something in you and to you. You're you have righteousness credited to your account. You're forgiven of all your sins. All of those things, we begin to, to unfold them. We don't jump right away into all kinds of duties. And that's on purpose because we want them to understand with clarity what has actually taken place. And from that firm foundation... Then, yes, we do move into uh, what the fruit of a new believer should look like. Like Ephesians 5.8, you were darkness, now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. There's a, there's a clear order there. You were darkness, now you are light. Live in harmony with your new identity. And how do you live in harmony with it? Out of the new resources that you have, which is the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now, that whole process of learning to depend on, on the indwelling Holy Spirit, it doesn't come overnight. Because for 30, 40, 50 years, that person has depended on one thing and one thing alone, flesh effort. So when he becomes a believer, he starts to understand what the new duties, let's say, what the Christian life is to look like. Do you think he's going to automatically depend on the indwelling Holy Spirit to live out that? No, he's not. He's going to try to live it out of flesh effort. Why? Because for the last 30, 40 years, that's the only thing he's drawn upon. Hmm. So there's a process there of raising the light level, informing them about the new resources and even teaching them uh, this what this uh, road is going to be like it's you're gonna you're gonna actually try to do all of this on your own but God's going to allow you to fail mm-hmm. why because he wants you to depend on him and in the Gospel of John we even see Jesus saying I can do nothing of myself. 
But whatever the Father shows me, that's what I do. I can of myself do nothing. If Jesus, who is the Son of God, came here and walked in our shoes and said, I I don't depend on myself, I depend upon the Father. How much more us who were born in sin and have only ever lived out of flesh effort, we're going to need to learn uh, to walk in that way as well. Mm. So so that also is even just kind of jumping back a little bit. When we're teaching on the life of Christ before Christ goes to the cross, we highlight some of these statements of Jesus. Why? Because once we get to the growing believer, we want, hey, do you remember what Jesus said? Even Jesus himself said, I can of myself do nothing. So it is going to be with us. Mm. For us to live victoriously, we have to learn to depend on a new source, which is the indwelling Holy Spirit. Wow. And, and that's, that makes sense, right? Uh, to establish people in their identity. How long do you think that, that takes to establish someone in their new identity. I feel like I'm still being established in that identity. Um, so how long how long do you take? Oh, my goodness. Um, it is a constant process. And, and I would say that we do that poorly back here in North America. I believe in North America we, we don't establish people well in their identity and their new resources, we give them right away the duties and the fruit. Mm. Um, this is what you should be doing. This is how you should be acting. And guess what? They're going to go out and do that in flesh effort. That's the only thing they've ever known. And so what I would say is it's not like we have to get them complete understanding in their new identity and their new resources before you start teaching them um, what what the Christian life actually looks like in everyday living. It's, it's an emphasis. Early on, your emphasis is going to be, let's say, 80-20. 80% of your emphasis is, is grounding them in their new identity, in their new resources. And then the other 20% is, you know what? Here's what the fruit of the Spirit looks like. And you're going to... But as, as that truth of your identity becomes more solidified, that percentage can change. And you might be, um, you might be 30 70 30% of the time for a more mature person, maturing person, you're reminding them over and over again of their identity. And then 70% were, were teaching on uh, what the Christian life looks like, husband-wife relationships, reaching out, being a friend, being loving, all of those things. And, uh, and it just depends on the need. And I, I can see, and I've had this experience, you're going along, and then all of a sudden you realize, you know what? We just need to take a couple of weeks and, and refresh our identity, who mm. we are, so that we can move on again in, uh, with the right foundation. Otherwise, people are just, they're trying to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, and, and they forget who they really are in Christ. So with the clarity that you have and that you've brought to the church plant, 
I imagine the church plant that you're involved in has no legalism tied to it. You know, it's just everyone gets it right off the bat. Is that how it is? Well, of course. It's the perfect group of believers. Uh, no. And what we said at the beginning, uh, when we first started out, what is man's, man's heart is what? Self-righteous. And man's heart is bent towards legalism. If you give the option towards, to most believers, let's, uh, let's say you give, uh, the average church, you give them the option of grace or a legalistic approach, most of them will choose the legalistic approach. That's Why? Crazy. Because that's, that is our heart's bent. And grace actually goes against the current. Now, grace does not diminish the bar. Grace actually just gives you the proper foundation to be able to attain higher level than, than legalism could ever do. For instance, what is at the absolute foundation of what God is looking for in our lives? I would say there's two principal things. One is that, that I trust him. Because without trusting God, implicitly, nothing else really matters. I could obey him, but I'm obeying him out of fear. And is that what God wants? No, we, we see from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the biggest, most important thing is love. Mm. You know, 1 John, what does, what does 1 John tell us? You know, the, the most important thing is that we, lo we love him. But the only way I can actually love God is if I first of all trust him and see him in his perfect, uh, perfect love, perfect power, holiness, and justice, and how he has embraced me, how he has accepted me 100%, and it's not based on my works, it's based on Jesus' work. And when I see that and I rejoice in it, and I go, wow, isn't God good? My heart, what happens within my heart is a trust rises up. And then out of that rises up a love for my Savior. And when, when trusting God and loving God are in my heart, then obedience flows out of that. We think that God wants obedience over everything. No, God wants love over everything. He wants, he wants a loving relationship with me because out of that loving relationship, then will flow the obedience. Then I will be willing to sacrifice. But love comes first. Mm -hmm. And and so I'm not sure if I even answered your your question. I feel like I rambled, but this to me is is some of the key things that I'm trying to teach. I want it real in my life every day, but I'm also trying to teach it to the to the people that God has given me the privilege of sharing his word. Yeah, no, uh, well you did. The fact that even with the doctrinal, doctrinal clarity that you have and you want to establish people in grace, there's still legalism in the church plant you're involved in. And, and that's where you've been very intentional with this, let alone the average, um, maybe church that hasn't been very intentional with grace and has opted for 
rules and giving their people rules to follow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a lot of times I, I've noticed this, that it's if you can create fear, and I've, I've seen it in churches where those teaching are creating doubt and fear to get obedience— that is totally not God's agenda. Because his his goal isn't obedience. His goal is actually a relationship of love, which then produces obedience. And that is so different. If I teach in such a way that I instill fear, duty, ultimatum, if, if you don't do this, well, then maybe you're not saying, well, well, what does that do? That brings fear and that brings doubt. And maybe I'll go out and I'll, be obedient, <laughs> uh, air quotes, but it, I will be missing the mark. Mm. Can you imagine any relationship surviving like that? Husband-wife relationship surviving on fear, duty, and ultimatum. It, it just doesn't work. It survives based on trust and love. And then from that, other things flow. Mm. Some awesome words and um, ideas for those out there in the field, church planting, establishing people in grace, teaching that first, highlighting his moral attributes and his amoral attributes, and then founding people in their identity and establishing them in their identity. Um, and obedience will come as a fruit of that. That's sort of my summary of, of what you're teaching. Um, yeah, and by the way, for those of you who are in uh, North America or in their homes, they haven't gone overseas, these principles apply to you too. Um, these are human nature. Uh, we are self-righteous to the core, and so are the people that we are wanting to reach out to, right? Um, and so you, as you're reaching out to your neighbors and friends, Think about that, right? Think about how can I talk about his moral attributes and his all moral attributes in such a way that they feel like they need Christ because that's the first thing they need to understand. Um, do you have any final thoughts you want to add? Yes. Um, well, we've, we've talked a lot kind of theology and we've talked kind of methodology. We've talked behind the scenes. What, what's the framework that we're teaching from? There's another component, which uh, all of us need to continually remember, and that component is the Holy Spirit. We are in, we depend on the Holy Spirit to communicate through our words and through the teaching of uh, the Word of God. It's not, if you have these things down pat, then it's it's a methodology will work or how you teach it will work. No, it, it's the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, is at work in the hearts and lives of people. But He uses the words and His Word in a way to bring conviction, to bring understanding, to bring enlightenment. And I've, I've often felt teaching there, it's like, I want to do the best I can. I want to lay the, the feast table as best I can, but I can't make them eat. 
and I depend upon the Holy Spirit to communicate truth to their hearts. Mm. Thank you so much to all of you out there. We love you and we're praying for you. God bless. You've been listening to the Rethink Missions podcast. For more information and episodes, go to wmissions.com. If you like this episode, leave us a positive review and subscribe.